Our message this morning is called A Dog's Life, and uh, it is November 24th, Sunday morning, A Dog's Life. You know, I uh, had one faithful companion this week uh, who never left my side. Apparently, a nine-pound dachshund can sleep about 23 hours a day, and he only needs to get up to eat and uh, the other things necessary secondary to eating. <laughs> and I'm not sure which he does more, but it's difficult uh, to find an animal that has a more simple existence. Dog people and cat people is a subject that is just as controversial as our men's and ladies' retreats. <laughs> and it turns out that at the University of Texas... In the last few years, a psychologist by the name of Sam Gosling conducted, I kid you not, a scientific study on people that own dogs versus people that own cats and what conclusions you could draw from that. His premise in studying 5,000 respondents was that cats are largely solitary animals, uh, in the wild, they very often are nearly nocturnal, whereas dogs, he said, were pack animals with a deep need for socialization. And he wanted to see what it said about people when they chose certain pets. Now, the only category that really there was nothing definitive to say about were those that owned both. So we're going to leave you out of the mix this morning for a minute. His conclusion was not all that surprising. He said, people that own cats very often have some of those same tendencies. They actually had a statistical, I mean, your tax dollars paid for this, by the way. You should know that. Very important stuff. And people that own dogs across the 5,000 respondents after all taking personality tests were about 25% more extroverted. Apparently, they had a strong need for socialization. I'm not at all interested in dogs or cats or what the university says about it. The Bible presents dogs largely in a negative view. You know, right there with pigs. It says uh, that a dog will return to its own vomit, that dogs are outside the kingdom where there are idolaters and murderers and liars, and interestingly enough, cowards, Revelation 22 says. Today, I want to talk to you about the minority view of the dog in the Bible. Now, that may seem a strange topic, especially for me, and I, I, some of you are probably bracing. What madness could this be? You're used to the smash-mouth gospel, and I understand that. Are you in 1 Samuel? Let's get to 1 Samuel 17 with a question from a really unusual place. In 1 Samuel 17, pick up with me in verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine with a shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
Now hold your finger there because we're going to come back to that passage and flip forward with me in the book of 1 Samuel to the 24th chapter. And in the 24th chapter, slide your finger down until you find the 14th verse. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Go back to 1 Samuel 17. The Philistine, Goliath, asked David, Am I a dog that you're coming against me? And of course the right answer is no, you are not a dog. I am. David himself called himself a dog. And not just a dog, but a dead dog. Not exactly a compliment by most standards. But when you think about it, this gives us some insight into David. It gives us some insight into the very heart of God. Look at the rest of David's response to the Philistines' question. You can find this in about verse 43, 44. Uh, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beast of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel." See, one thing about a man who says that he is a dog is he has no reputation of his own that he needs to fight to defend. This leaves him free to fight for the reputation of another, his God. The more highly we think of ourselves, saints, the more pride we take in our family name and the more pride that we take in our station in life, You're edging out the pride that you could be taking in your heavenly father's name and your position in his royal family. But if you brought nothing to the table except what he gave you, then you have something to fight for. David did not think of himself more highly than he should. He himself chose to be identified with a dog's life. How about Isaiah 66? Turn with me there. Say there when you're there. How many of you are not sure you want to be a dog? Okay, y'all went silent on me again. Is there a brave person in the audience, at least while I preach to just you? Who, who can respond to a pastor when he speaks? Amen. Amen. Cody, I can find you. Cody, are you in Isaiah 66? In Isaiah 66... Let's pick up with verse 18 and consider a dog's life. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather a few nations and a few tongues. Is that what it says? Look, we put it on the screen for you to read. Some of you brought Bibles and put them in your laps. What does it actually say? All nations in all tongues. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. The living God wanted to gather every single nation on the planet. But do you know what the religious nation thought of all of the other nations? Gentile 
dogs. Exactly right. And that feud was bigger than the dog and the cat feud is, friends. It's bigger than the feud between the men's and women's retreats. That feud was so impassable that it took the death of God's son to heal the rift. But if you thought of yourself as a dog, if that is how you approached the glory of God, not as somebody who was already righteous, but as somebody who was so far from righteous that it would take God to make you righteous, it turns out that God was pleased with that. This is how prostitutes and tax collectors entered the kingdom before the most religious learned men of the day. And Isaiah 66, he goes on to say, I will set a sign among them. The them are all of the nations, the Gohim, the, the Gentiles of the world. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians, to the famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. We have a job to do. You were not put here simply to worship the Lord and love him. You were not put here simply to have your best life now or to enjoy every day like it was Friday. You were not put here as the center of God's creation, just to sit here on your salvation. You were placed upon the planet and given a purpose. And the purpose had to do with spreading God's likeness, spreading God's image, spreading God's rule over the entire planet so that they might see his glory. Who in here's tasted of his glory? Saints, we were called to spread the glory of God on the planet. If you came into this world noble, if you came into this world already pristine, if you came into this world righteous, then you have no need of the Lord. And this is one of the reasons that it's hard for the wealthy to be saved. They don't see a need. Now, one of the sad things is nobody in the room claims to be wealthy, and from a world standard, we all are wealthy. By virtue of the clothes that you're wearing, you're wealthy. Do you know that most of you could walk into any one of the five continents, into an average country, and simply by walking in in the clothes that you're wearing, it would be intimidating to the people there? How important is it that we have a right view of ourselves? That we're willing, in the name of Jesus, to be considered dogs that we might become something more than that. How about this one? Turn with me to Matthew 15. Say there when you're there. Amen. It's like popcorn. Matthew 15. <laughs> how many of you are saved? Let's just start there. I'm not going to ask how many you're lying. I'm just asking how many say they're saved. If you, uh, if you really believe that you had a death sentence and it's now been relieved, let's just imagine that DJ was about to catch the electric chair. I mean, it's Texas. That's not hard to imagine, right? 
Texas, the state where everybody's armed. I think we kill more people in this state than any of the others, and most are pretty proud of it. If he's about to go to the electric chair and he receives a pardon, can you see him just going, yes, that is nice. Let us contemplate the mercy involved. Or could you see a little emotion coming out of him? Maybe even a tear or two. If you bought into the idea that you can't have emotionalism in church, well, consider the alternative. You know, as far as I can tell, God did not call the planet Vulcan to get saved here this morning. In the 15th chapter of Matthew, there is a woman that felt like she had a death sentence. You know, there is no pain in a parent's life. Like when their children aren't doing well. My wife is a pretty sweet person, except from the hours of 4 a.m. to about 6 a.m. Then she does not like to be awakened. But you want to get on her wrong side fast. Put one of the kids in a bad position. And her claws come out. It's amazing such a delicate creature can throw such a powerful punch. <laughs> For just a moment, let's not think about this next story as just a Bible story. Because that happens to us. When so many hands go up saved, it's kind of like we all are pretty sure we know the Bible, although don't ask me any specific details because my memory's not so good, you know. That's kind of today's American Christianity. We can quote three or four verses, and they're the ones that justify our sin, and we just don't want anybody to look too close. Let's dig just a little deeper for a minute and think about this as your wife or your neighbor or somebody that you know intimately. And watch this exchange, Matthew 15, 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now, it says they're in Tyre and Sidon, and that a woman from that vicinity, who was a Canaanite, came forward. This is to make sure that you understand it's not a Jew living in Tyre and Sidon. In every way, the scripture goes out of its way, both by location and then by ethnic identification to show you this woman is an outsider to the things of God. And yet, how does she refer to Jesus? Lord, this word is owner and controller, son of David. You who have the historic right to the throne of David, that's what son of David means. You who are an heir to the promise of God to have a throne in Israel forever. That's an amazing statement. Have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering. What's that next word? In the south, terribly. Suffering terribly. How do you feel when your kids are suffering? It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Not just suffering a little bit, but suffering terribly. And then from what? Yeah, she must not have gone to a denominational church, huh? 
We're told these things don't even occur. How many of you were in Romania? Do they occur? You know, she was suffering because her child was suffering. And listen to Jesus and how he responds. It's shocking. Jesus did not answer her a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Sometimes it's easy to love Jesus and it is just terribly hard to love the people he loves, isn't it? Can you think of a worse thing to say? Lord, she won't shut up, so will you send her away? Never mind the fact that she's suffering terribly because her child is suffering terribly. Just send her away. She's bothering us. Anybody in here think that's the right thing to say? But nevertheless, it's hard to deal with the fact that she's crying out and who's not answering her? Today in popular Christianity, we've taught that Jesus is a big Santa Claus and that whatever you want, he gives you. He's like a magic genie in the sky that with the right formula will produce for you health, wealth, and success. And then these purveyors of profit stand up as examples of health, wealth, and success and say, if you don't have what they have, if you're suffering, it's because you didn't get the formula right. I don't think God is like that. So why is Jesus not answering her? Jesus did not answer her a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Is that true? Yes. He was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. How do you act when you've asked the Lord for something and he has not answered you? I know how I act. On day one, I wanted to be healed. I did. Is that unusual? No. Any of you just want to be sick? No. When your fever gets to the place where you can't read, that's annoying. It is. After you sweated through all the sheets in your house, that's annoying. When you notice that your family will not come within 10 feet of you. <laughs> it's annoying. I wanted to be healed. And so I prayed. And I prayed fervently for about 15 seconds. And then I complained in my inner dialogue for a good 15 minutes. And this is pretty normal. And it's pretty normal because we want what we want when we want it. We are a society of instant gratification. So much so that we celebrate it. We celebrate it at every turn. Look at the trending YouTube clips and you'll find bands of teenagers running around knocking people out for no other reason than they want to watch somebody fall. It's been in every newspaper. It's insane. Never mind what it does to them, a single shot in a YouTube uh, video, and it's worth it. Instant gratification. We order at one window and we pick up at the next. And we don't know what it is to display real, genuine faith. And the charismatic community, I would love to praise us, if that's what we are, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I wouldn't be numbered with those guys. 
But if that's what we are, we're the worst because God speaks to us every 15 minutes and we make him a schizophrenic. <laughs> this woman kept crying out even when Jesus didn't answer her. And then when he does answer her, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. How many of you are comfortable kneeling before another human being? See, I came from South Louisiana. They're pretty comfortable with it as long as he's dressed right. But in Texas, people don't like to kneel before other human beings. What does this indicate? She's already called him Lord. She's already called him son of David. This is the arch enemy of the Canaanite people, by the way. I mean, we love the story of David and Goliath. You know why? We don't descend from Philistines. I found out in a parade here a few years ago that our shirt in the giant killing business since 1000 BC was not very popular among the Palestinian Authority in Houston. <laughs> Who would have thought that not everybody loved that story? This woman is from the wrong team. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Is there anybody that's insulted yet? To be ignored, then to be told, I didn't come to you, then to be told that you're a dog. But I want you to notice, with every obstacle, the woman pressed in just a little deeper. When she was ignored, she kept crying out. When she was told it was for somebody else, she came and knelt before him. When she received resistance, she pushed closer to Jesus, not further away. And what does that say about her heart? It says an awful lot, doesn't it? Look at this response. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. That woman got what she wanted that day. From that very hour, her daughter was healed. Because when she felt rebuffed, she didn't get rejected. When she felt rebuffed, she pressed in a little further, saying, I know the character of my master. I know who he is. And although this looks difficult, if I keep pushing in, he won't turn me away forever. He called her a dog and she accepted that. You know why? Because a dog has a persistent, tenacious, overcoming faith. They love their master. Y'all ever read those stories? Where a family goes on vacation, they take Fido with them. Somebody didn't notice that Fido wasn't in the car when they left. And two years later, Fido crossed the United States to be at their house. It's amazing. I had a lot of time on my hands, Brookie. Uh, I mean, what do you do? I can't read. I'm delirious. I'm in and out. So my kids and I watched Netflix, right? It's about the least edifying thing you can do, but it was all I was capable of. And we watched a pit bull on Netflix named Winston, oddly enough. Not Winston, my dachshund. Chew a bumper off of a police car. When he got the bumper off, 
he started working on a tire. Would you believe that dog popped a police car's tire? And all the other dogs from the neighborhood came out, and it was kind of like they were cheering for him. There was something perversely exciting about the whole event. I watched it twice. I don't know what it is about what they say, man's best friend, but there is something refreshing about the loyalty that a dog shows. You can tell it. I tell Winston every day that I think he's nearly worthless. And I mean it about 50% of the time. But a dog is just happy to be in his master's presence. And if crumbs is all it gets, he's happy for those crumbs. This woman walked away getting what she needed from the Lord because she was willing to consider him the Lord and her his dog. Has an arrogance crept into the church that's unsavory? There's something to be said for persistence. Could you put Romans 2, 7 on the screen for us? To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. You want to talk about persistence? Get a puppy. Promise that you are not going to put the puppy in your bed or in your room. That puppy will, if we could pray like a puppy can cry. I myself saw my father. He was a hulk of a human being. Those of you that didn't know him in his earlier years, Gary Kenshin could throw a football with his right hand and a baseball with his left at a collegiate level. How weird is that? Bizarre. <clears throat> 45 years old, he could still outrun me when I was 16. That's something. And he was reduced to absolute servitude by a crying puppy. Every time it whined, he did exactly what the dog wanted him to do. It's amazing how a little bit of loyalty and tenacity can move the heart of a human being. And God fashioned our hearts after his. You may not understand what the Lord's doing with your life right now. In fact, if he's really doing something with your life, you're almost guaranteed not to understand it. One speaker came here and called it the dark room of development. But if you can learn to press in even when you feel insulted, instead of push away, I guarantee his character says you will get what you need from him. I'm encouraging a dog's life this morning. Turn with me to Judges. This would be the seventh book in the seventh chapter. Say there when you're there. I'm not sure what to do with the new more sedate LCMF. There. Hmm? There. Teacher, say something. They, it's, they must be shocked you're here. That's what it is. Teacher's not sedate, and she's in from Dallas. Teacher's one of us. In the book of Judges, what a familiar story. Again, could be so easy to tune it out, but I want to show you a detail today that I bet you haven't seen before. All of you have probably seen the statistical breakdown that when we start with 32,000 and end up with 300 men, what a fraction of a percent that is. You've all probably heard messages on the remnant. 
I know if you've been in this church, you've heard messages on the lap dog, the, those kind of things. Let's hear it freshly today. Here comes the first verse. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all of his men encamped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was to the north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreth. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Before we go further, is God concerned with the outcome? Not at all. I bet Jesus knew he was going to heal that Syrophoenician woman's daughter the moment she walked up. He's not concerned with the outcome as much as the process because that process, it defines you. See, that woman could have walked away and nothing about her life been revealed, nothing about her character been revealed, nothing of worth contributed to the world. If she walked up and said, uh, uh, Lord, uh, over at table number two, I, I need it now. And he goes, oh, very well. We don't know a thing about her, do we? But you know something about her heart and what moves God now. If 32,000 men went out and got the victory, God was concerned that Israel would think it was by her own strength and her own hand. I want you to understand the outcome with God has never been in question. The way we get there is the only thing in question. And we are guaranteed it's going to take faith. 22,000 people walked away. What does that tell you about those 22,000? To them, the outcome was not certain, was it? I want to tell you in any large group of people that claim that they're of the faith, the vast majority have just learned the language. It's like we're talking about Elvis Presley and we're all saying all of the things about Elvis Presley and at the end of the day you found out they were talking about their butcher and you were talking about a guy that used to sing rock and roll music. They just had the same name. Terminology will not insulate us From the truth that we either are certain of the outcome of our lives and the purpose of our lives or we're not. Do you have a firm grasp on why you were put on the planet today? Are you working for divine purposes in here? Are you just living for carnal fancies? A little bit better than your neighbors, and so it's probably good enough. See, 22,000 men revealed their hearts in that moment. Y'all have all heard those Internet stories, right? Somebody breaks into a room in Russia with guns and says, all the Christians get against the wall. Anybody who wants to deny Jesus can leave now, and we won't shoot you. Amen. After some leave, the guys are supposed to have thrown down their guns and said, oh, you're the ones we can really trust. Anybody heard that story? 
I think it's floated around for years, right? Probably, no doubt, there's some truth in it. I'm amazed at the number of people that tell the story that I think would run right out of the room. I've been where they point guns at you. And you see in the hearts of some, sincere excitement might get to see Jesus. You see in the hearts of others, this is not what I signed up for. You really do. You see it immediately. It's funny. The next year, the mission sign up for that country will either grow or shrink depending on your heart. I'm very proud that LCMF took almost 50 people back the very next year to the very same road and got held up at gunpoint again. And we're still here. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them there for you. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. The Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. I've taught this many times before, so I won't do it again, only to say that you could take water with your hand and bring it to your mouth, which is like a dog's tongue that retrieves water while the dog is still looking ahead. It goes down into the bowl, makes a cup, and pulls it back. Or you could lay on your face in the water and abandon yourself to your thirst. This was the choice. 9,700 men who were not scared, that was not their problem, laid down on the ground and put their face in the water. See, when you find people that are not scared to do God's will, then the question becomes, are you selfless? enough to do God's will. Most are so concerned with their own needs, they can't keep their eyes on what God's eyes are on. The group that lapped water like a dog, they kept their head on a swivel. Lord, you brought us here to fight after all. And they kept their eyes on what was going on, but that's not what caught my attention. I want you to notice what happens to those who are lapping water like a dog. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and the Midianites into your hands. Let all of the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept 300. How many did he send away? 9,700 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. 300 men now had the provisions and the trumpets of the 9,700 men. See, the thing about a dog is a dog that is tenacious, a dog that has no reputation of its own to fight for, a dog that is spiritually alert. That kind of dog in the kingdom is going to leave provided for and with a trumpet voice of God. And he is because God is looking for somebody to carry his glory. 
He's looking for somebody to make it known among the nations. He's looking for somebody who will do his work at all cost. You wondered why we have these great generals in the faith? Men like David Wilkerson, who went to be with the Lord not that long ago. Men like John Wesley in yesteryear. Maybe they were just some of the very few who are carrying the provision that was meant for us all. You see, it must be kind of awkward for 300 men to carry the trumpets of 9,700 men. It must be kind of awkward for 300 men to carry the provisions of 9,700 men. But some were willing to do it. So they left with more provision than anyone could eat. They left with more trumpet power than anyone could need. And there we find what the dog's life is really like. When you care nothing for your own life, God pours all of his life into you. Turn with me to Psalm 105. Say there when you're there. If you can't find Psalms in your Bible, hit the middle of your Bible. Because it's 105, you'll probably have to turn to the right after that. In Psalm 105, on the subject of carrying provision, being just few in number, look at the 12th verse. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. This verse has been quoted so many times. And in the arena that I come from, it usually only refers to whoever's on the platform. Friends, it refers to whoever was not scared on the day of battle. It refers to whoever could move in past the initial rebuttal and press in in faith. It refers to whoever denied their own thirst to keep the purposes of God in mind. It refers to the way that a righteous remnant are always carrying the provision that was meant for everyone. Why is the church so accustomed, comfortable with letting so few do so much? How many of you believe we're a kingdom of priests? What do you expect a priest to do? A priest is going to serve. He's going to mediate between God and man. Well, how are you doing it? What steps have you taken to help your neighbor get right with God? What steps have you taken to help your relatives get right with God? What steps are you taking to show concern or care for anyone outside of your own seat? See, we might... Be dogs, those of us who are pouring out our lives for this. But we have heavenly provisions. We might be dogs, but we're leaving with our master having granted our request. You know what is the only thing that I like better than a dog's life? Turn with me to 2 Samuel 9. Come on. Thank you. There, there. 
there, there. We sound like we're soothing a child. Is that me? Am I the child? <laughs> In 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? I don't just love David. I love the Lord for whom he represents. I... I I couldn't help it. I was sharing with the prison ministry this morning about God's heart for the lost. David is now king in Israel. And what is he looking for the chance to do? To show kindness to someone in his enemy's house. Sometimes the heart of the Lord is so different than the heart that is expressed in the church. Because the heart of God is concerned for people, even if they grew up in the enemy's house, the king of kings cares for the lost. Abner spent his entire career killing David's men. Joab spent his entire career killing Abner's men. Joab killed Abner and David got mad at him for it. Because Abner was showing signs of repentance. Guys, the king of kings wants to see the world repent. So David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there... No one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Could you hear the servant say that as if it's kind of unsavory, Lord? I mean, it's not that there's nobody. It's just that there's nobody, you know, worth mentioning. Are some human beings worth more than others? Do some mother's children deserve a better shot than other mother's children? You know, I think Jesus died for the entire globe. What does it say that there are millions that die without hearing his name every day? That that's happening around the world. Right now. The heart of God is looking for someone to show kindness to. One thing about a boy who is crippled in both feet. Is he could probably use a hand, huh? And he knows it. You know, they asked Oprah Winfrey why she didn't do the things in Chicago anymore. That she now does in Africa. She used to give away things in Chicago all of the time. Some of you people who watched her show all of the time, and I'm sorry if you did, might have liked the shows where she gave away cars and things in Chicago. She won't do it anymore. You know why? One of the most secular women the world has ever produced says the people are so ungrateful, I can't bear to do it. You give somebody an iPod and they don't even say thank you because they felt like they deserved it. The whole world seems to be shocked right now that they may have to pay for health insurance. An entitlement society. 
Everybody, across the board, entitled to Jesus' love, entitled to his forgiveness, entitled to everything. This boy who's crippled in both feet, I bet he didn't feel entitled to much. Verse 4, where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makur, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Lodabar, lo in Hebrew, means no. Debar is a pasture. He lives in a place where there is no pasture. Are you getting the idea that this young man has got a great life? The backstory to this is because of warfare in his hometown. Warfare that was not his fault, but was simply the generation he was born into. Disease stock, Saul's household. When he was still young, still being nursed, he was dropped. And he became crippled in both feet when he was dropped. Is that his fault? So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makur, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, what a great name. Y'all say that with me. Mephibosheth. <laughs> For some of you, it's the first time you've spoken tongues. Mephibosheth means the one who took shame away. Or exterminated shame would be a better translation. He looks like the bearer of shame, actually. He comes from a cursed house that's now fallen. He's trying to walk on feet that don't work because he was dropped during a time of war that they lost. Everything about his life says defeat. But when God named him, he had a purpose for him. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. <laughs> it's got an explanation point in the NIV. The original language hints at excitement in the way that it's written here. Your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? You know what is better than a dog's life, friends? A dead dog. See, even a dog can get pretty pleased with himself. You bathe my little dachshund and he prances around the house as if he made himself clean. revealing, isn't it? As if we made ourselves clean. But a dead dog is literally nothing of worth. Nothing there. He doesn't stay a dead dog though, friends. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. 
Look at verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my Lord commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. The first chapter of John in the 12th verse says, as many as believed on him, he gave the right to become sons of God. I want you to understand that we didn't make ourselves clean. We didn't bring anything of worth into this relationship. You may not have made yourself clean. Some of us have gotten really proficient at making ourselves dirty, haven't we? And not just once. Time after time after time. In fact, sometimes we get sick of going to churches where they preach about sin because we'd just like to feel good about ourselves. You know how you feel good about yourself? When you die to sin. That's when you can feel good. When you consider yourself a dead dog and he makes you a son at his table. You couldn't do anything to get there. But now that you're there, you're not, sure not going to act like a dead dog. Guys, dogs are negative in the scripture so many times because nobody's ever meant to stay just a sinner. We're supposed to grow into something more than that. A kingdom of saints. Have you bought into a lie that says we're just old sinners saved by grace? As if you're supposed to stay just an old sinner all of your life? Because if you have, that might be why you're just an old sinner. Might be why that's what you expect of yourself, what you're giving, and what you're getting. But I bet Mephibosheth never lived a day again in his life the same way after seated at the table as he did before. Are you seated at the table with the king? Or have you just heard about others' experiences who have and you've learned to mimic what they say? I know what it is to stand in the presence of God. I've heard his voice in a way that not everybody gets to. I'm going to tell you there's no substitute for knowing you're his son. No doctrine can be wrapped around you that will give you that kind of assurance. No comfort from others. No criticism of a particular ministry. Nothing that you could do can give you the kind of joy and satisfaction of knowing God himself is pleased with you. Did you know that Romans says his spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're his? We don't have to create for ourselves 14-point statements that do it for us. Matthew 16 tells us how to get there. Matt, you can come up here. It tells us how to get there. Oddly enough, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me. If who would come after me? Who, DJ? Who? You can say, I've heard you speak. <coughs> if. Any. Louder. Anyone. Louder. Come on, Brenton, help him out. How loud can we get? Pretty loud. Do it. Anyone. Gabe. Anyone. I don't know. In my days, 12, 13, 14-year-old young men were not so shy. Anyone. Yeah. Anyone. Anyone. There we go. 
Not some men, not a few men, not a, a, a special men, not 300 of 32,000. If anyone would come after me, what's he have to do? Deny himself. That's why I prefer a dog's life. And take up his cross and follow me. You know what? My dachshund follows me anywhere that I go. He thinks I might feed him. <laughs> and occasionally he's right. He follows me anywhere I go because like that Syrophoenician woman, he's hoping to catch a crumb. See, a dog's life is following attentively at your master's feet, hoping for any crumb because there's a day when he's going to seat you at his table. And when you have been sat at the table, you don't need a denominational stamp to tell you. You don't need a letter from the Vatican to tell you. In fact, all the power of hell can tell you it hasn't happened and none can take it from you. I wish that you knew today what I know. I wish with all of my heart that you didn't have to spend one more day expecting to fail trying to explain away sin in some strange doctrinal twist. You know, God can't be mocked. Did you know that? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, period. And he says, and such were some of you. Were, past tense. 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That either has or has not happened in your life. You can stand to your feet. It either has or has not happened. I've noticed in church these days you say, if you need to be born again, come to the front. And nobody comes. You say, if you need to be healed, then a few trickle. Say, you need to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. Maybe one brave soul. Though people usually wait till afterwards to ask you in private. You say, who in here has not been living right and is capable of better and, and God will help you? And if you give it time, every person in the room will come forward. Well, how is it that we're all born again and none of us are living like it? Isn't it worth just asking that question? Everybody be watching parades in a few days. You'll be able to think about something else. But right now, I've got you. I'm not sure how you got here, and you may be really upset with the person that brought you. That's okay. This is your moment to be in the vice. The Bible calls it the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision. There's going to be a day when we stand before the king, and you won't be able to say, I, I wasn't told. He said, I've been a Christian all my life. Have you lived like a Christian all your life? That's what I'm concerned with. I've been a very religious person. Well, good for you. You get to shovel coal with a couple other really popular people. The king of kings has called us to something higher. He has. And the world is dying for us to reveal ourselves. They are. They just want to know, is there a real one out there? I remember when I met some of you, slap a few faces and you find out whether or not you're with Christians. Do they turn the other cheek? 
insult somebody and see whether they can smile back at you. You might know when you've been among Christians because they love you even if you're not loving. Boy, it's been so quiet this service. Not really that hard. It comes from a heart that says, I've tried, Lord, and it's not been working so good. I've proclaimed your name, but I haven't lived out your ways. And now for the first time in my life, I want to be honest about it. I'm going to tell you what the prophet Elijah said to a saved nation. This is important. A saved nation. Every single person believing they were born again. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, go serve him. Joshua said to a saved nation, yeah, I've seen you people. You're not able to serve the Lord. Oh, no, we are able to serve the Lord. Now I've seen what you're disposed to do. You are not able to serve the Lord. No, 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 we will serve the Lord. He said, very well, then by your own mouth, you have said it. You will serve the Lord, and he will hold you to your word. That's what he said. That's as much Bible as John 3.16. Have you made a vow to the Lord? Because during worship, I'm pretty sure he told me that this room was filled with people that had made him promises and were not living up to those promises. Now's our chance to get it right. 